Um, we want to continue, we want to actually finish it off this morning talking about true love, because of course, what's better than talking about true love? Let's recap what we talked about last week to make sure we are all on the same page. Last week, you looked at passion. Remember I said to you that this idea in our culture of following your passion is incredibly bad, uh, uh, bad advice. We looked at Cal Newton and uh, his teaching on that, and a lot of research has come out that When we follow our passions, what actually happens is we are following something that's always changing. And the problem with following something that's always changing is that you are never satisfied and you're always hopping from place to place. And we talked about how when we look at the Bible and how the Bible understands passion, it is something that is uh, really seen within the character and the nature of who God is. For our God is a consuming fire. Do not quench the spirit. When, we, when the Bible talks about being a Christ follower and whatever that looks like, there is this passion that's meant to be there. And I said to you last week as well that that's why I think the world doesn't really believe what we say is because we are living a passionless faith. Like sometimes when people talk about God, I just want to shake them a little bit and going, you realize what you're talking about, right? The creator of the universe, everything, like that's God. But you're talking about him as if you're talking about the weather or, or, or like something else. Like it's like there has to be that kind of emotional connection to God. We looked at the definition of biblical passion and we said that from Romans chapter 12, verse 11, that there are three components, faithfulness, spiritual excitement, plus serving God. These are the three ways the Bible understands passion. And I said to you, if I was going to uh, translate Romans chapter 12, verse 11 into more uh, modern day language, this is what it looked like. Don't be unfaithful. Keep your excitement for life when you stay focused on God. Remember I said to you that this entire series is looking at our love, our passion, and our desire. Right? These are the words we use in our culture today. Passion, desire, love. But I don't know if we actually understand what these words mean. And I'm not sure if we understand how dangerous these are as well. Like passion, love, and desire are are great words, and they have such a firm foundation in who God is, but we use them so haphazardly that I don't know if we understand the meaning of what they mean. So let's continue on the series, and we're going to wrap it up, and today we're going to look at this idea of God is love. In 1 John, when John is writing his letter, remember, when John writes his letter, he's a little older, he's the last surviving disciple, and he's telling his church, the churches, that the way you best understand God is God is love. But the question we have to ask ourselves, what kind of love? Right? Because I've heard people talk about the love of God as a way to cover their behavior, how they act, how they think. Right? God loves me, so he's okay with this. God's okay with, God loves me, therefore I can do or behave and live whichever I want. But the problem is, though, is that when you read the Bible, it doesn't really talk about it that way. And when we ask what kind of God, uh, what kind of love God has, what do we find out? There's a way that God describes his love is a way that kind of makes us uncomfortable. And I want to show it to you because when God talks about his love, what he's trying to tell us, it's a little bit more intense than we perhaps understand. When the Bible talks about God's love, it uses a phrase, jealous. When God describes how he is towards us, he uses the word jealous. In Exodus chapter 34, do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. In Exodus chapter 20, this is when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, right? He says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire a jealous God. And finally, in 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. 
Now, isn't this interesting that when we think about jealousy, we have a very different way of thinking about it. And when God self-identifies as a jealous God, part of us goes, hmm, that doesn't seem right. right? I, 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 in the first service, I didn't ask for a show of hands. I'm not going to ask for as well. But how many of you have been in a relationship with a jealous person? It's not a fun experience. Where are you at? Where, who, who are you with? Where are you seeing? Who's texting you right now? Who are you texting? Like, like, like a, a jealous individual is a person that is not healthy, and a jealous relationship is not a healthy relationship. So why does God call himself jealous? Because I think one of the problems with jealousy is that we don't really properly understand where it comes from. Jealousy is the awareness of a relational drift. And the other problem with jealousy is we get envy and jealousy when we mix them up. Now, let me explain to you that, right? So envy is to, be, is to want something that is outside of your relationship. Jealousy is a, is a word that we use about a relationship that we're in. So, for example, you can be envious of somebody else's stuff or things or relationships, but you have no relationship with that. Jealousy is about your relationship with someone and the state of it. So, for example, for, obviously for my wife and I, my wife has said something to me about, uh, so being a pastor is kind of an interesting thing, right? Because it's not the type of job that you go to an office you come home with because you're always kind of on call, but just really you're, 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 my, my job as a pastor really intersects different parts of people's lives and, and the good times, the bad times, and that's the way it goes. But my wife has said to me over, over uh, our, our marriage that sometimes she's jealous of the church because it always takes me away from her. And that's true. Not that it takes me away from her. But what she's really saying is, is that I miss you. Is that when you forget about our relationship, you, f- you think about so much about the tasks you have to do that I miss you. And what she's reminding me is that I have to make time for her. Sometimes ministry, and everybody feels this, whether it's a ministry or not, your jobs as well too, we all get really busy with life, especially certain periods of time when your job is requiring more or school is requiring more or whatever it be. You, you forget about the relational connection you're supposed to have. So my wife is saying to me, she's not jealous of any of you. Like, she, she, it's not that. But what she's saying is, sweetheart, you're not spending time with me. Right? Like the, she texted me about a week ago, like, we need to go away somewhere for a couple of days. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. I never thought about that. Right? But she is aware of that because, A, she's brilliant. But, B, she also has that emotional component with us. And so that she's like, you know what? We haven't spent time together. We haven't talked. You know, we just haven't had that emotional connection. And that's where jealousy really comes into play. Is when you see a relationship that you're in, but you realize there's a drift in that relationship. And that's how we have to frame our understanding of God. Now, when we talk about jealousy, we talk about human jealousy. And when we talk about human jealousy, we're talking about a negative thing. As I said to you, how many of you have been in a relationship with a jealous person? I saw some of you nodding your heads. And, you know, we're not going to have a testimony time of, of what that looks like. But it can be a very unhealthy thing. Why? Because human jealousy is a negative thing. Because the outcome of that human jealousy is a way of looking at a relationship. And at the core of human jealousy, trust. Who are you texting? Who have you been with? Who are you talking to? Where have you been? What they're really saying is, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. I don't trust you. I don't trust you. And that's where relational drift comes in. So human jealousy is based upon a lack of trust. Because if you trust the person, who they're texting at 9 o'clock at night or whoever's emailing them or calling them, you don't. You trust them. So whatever happens after that, it's like, okay, I'm sure whoever's texting or whatever, it's, it's part of their uh, job. You're not worried about it. 
So human jealousy really comes, stems from a lack of trust in a relationship. And so that's where we see the negative part. And the Bible acknowledges that. We see a couple of examples. And again, it's only showing a couple, right? But we see how this plays out, right? When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous for her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die, right? And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you are still worldly for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are, not, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? What do we see here? Human jealousy is this lack of trust and has a negative outcome. And I've dealt with, as a pastor, you know, relationships that are unhealthy, and that unhealthiness, when you kind of dig a little deeper, stems from jealousy. And jealousy is lack of trust, but that lack of trust breeds insecurity. I'm insecure of this relationship. I'm insecure about this person's feelings towards me. Therefore, I act this way. And nobody wants to be in that kind of relationship at all. And if you're in that relationship... I don't want to, maybe we should have a breakup Sunday. No, don't do that. Um, hashtag UCC breakup. No, don't do that. But, uh, but that, you know, we, when, we're, you, when you're in a jealous relationship, that lack of security, that lack of trust makes things uncomfortable and unpleasant and nobody wants to be in that, right? Because that shows a lack of, 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 of so many different things. Now, that's how we frame jealousy. That's how we think about jealousy. But when God calls himself jealous, what we have to acknowledge is that jealousy is different than human jealousy. Because until you understand that, you won't really understand the relationship that God has for you. And so, when God describes his relationship with you, he does so in such a way that he's trying to tell you what kind of relationship he has with you. Some people say, God's my best friend. He's my BFF. Right? That's nice, but he doesn't talk about you that way. Right? Like, there's people you have in your lives who maybe really like you and want to hang out with you all the time. Right? And they'll text you, hey, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, I'm not going to answer that text. You know, I'm just going to. Uh, and, and they'll say, hey, did you get my text last night? Oh, I, my phone wasn't away. My phone, even though it's in my pocket or stuck to my hand, I didn't see your. Right? There's people who really like you and you just don't have time, or maybe it's like, I don't feel that same way with you, right? But when God describes his relationship with you, he uses a certain understanding of relationship that kind of describes it. Now, look how God describes his relationship with you. When God describes his relationship biblically, what he's trying to say is the most, the closest relationship that he can convey his relationship with you is marriage. Marriage is the way that God describes his relationship with you. Uh, And so God's jealousy stems from his understanding of our relationship is supposed to be. So in a marriage relationship, jealousy can be and is actually a healthy thing if the person is saying to the other person, we are drifting apart. So um, as a pastor, I do a lot of weddings. Uh, I've done a lot of weddings this year. And in my premarital counseling, I uh, tell the couples something um, about uh, emotional bank accounts. Here's how it looks. Here's how it goes, right? Basically, I say to them that each, each person in the relationship, the husband and wife, they have emotional bank accounts. And what happens in your life is you are meant to be depositing in those emotional bank accounts. You know, I love you, a hug here, uh, a text there saying thinking about you, right? These are deposits in the emotional bank account. When conflict happens is when the bank accounts are at zero. And you're trying to withdraw and you've got nothing there. That's when conflict happens. Right? So when God talks about his relationship with us, he is talking about it in such a way that it's talking about a marriage relationship, a love relationship. 
I remember one time I invited someone to church. Uh, this was a few years back. And they said something interesting to me as a Christian I never thought of. But in our worship times, he said to me, all your worship songs sound like love songs. And I'm like, yeah, they do. But that's the point, right? Because how we talk about a relationship with God is in that love relationship. Well, when God talks about his relationship with us, he talks about a love relationship, but not just a love relationship, but a marriage love relationship. Look what the Bible says about how God describes that. In Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm not talking about Christ in the church. Jesus answered, how can guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so, uh, so long as they have them with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. When God describes his relationship to you, what he is trying to tell you is he's trying to use the only significant relationship you will ever be in. Now, understand something. You have friends, you have siblings, you have parents. Those are all significant relationships. The Bible takes, though, the marriage relationship, and it supersedes all other relationships. And that's, supposed, that's the way it's supposed to be. Not that the other relationships aren't important. They're just not as important as your marriage relationship. And then the reason why the Bible says that is because the Bible understands a marriage relationship as a covenant relationship. Now, what's a covenant? Covenant is an Old Testament relational contract that literally meant that if you go to war, I go to war. If anybody attacks you, they attack me. And actually, the covenant relationship, you would actually exchange last names. That's the way we get marriage from, right? The exchange of a last name and marriage relationship was the reflection of a covenantal relationship in the Old Testament. So when God talks about you, he's not talking about you like you're his friend or that you're his children. Those are words he does use. But when he does talk about you, he's talking about you as if he is in this intimate, authentic, covenantal relationship called marriage. And so the intensity of a marriage relationship and I mean healthy is in a healthy way of looking at it, right? Marriage is tough. I said this in the first service. I'm going to say this to you. And there are times there's ebb and flows in a marriage relationship, especially if you have young kids, right? Young kids, are like, okay, I just got to make it through the day and hopefully I get some sleep, right? That's, that's how it is, right? And there are times in your life where life is busy. You start a new job or you move away or things like that, right? It's ebb and flow. But hopefully the ebb and flow finds a way of saying consistently that you value this person as your husband and your wife, right? So when God talks about us, he uses the analogy, the metaphor of a marriage marriage relationship. Thus, jealousy is how he describes himself. Any husband, any wife that's not jealous of anything that takes your spouse away from them, that's a problem. That is a problem. Because jealousy is the first emotion that that indicates a minute, I'm the most important thing. Not this job, not these friends, not these people, but me. And that's actually a fair statement. So God, when he talks about himself, he talks about himself as jealousy. And the Bible, when he uses words in the Hebrew and the Greek, uses words to talk about this intense emotion. The root idea in the Old Testament word jealous is to become intensely red. Now, I don't blush, and I wish I did, but I don't. But my wife, who is a ginger um her emotions are on her face right matter of fact i know if i'm in trouble if her neck is red 
Because that's like kind of a barometer, like, whoa, okay, I've gone too far, or that intensity of emotion. Now, what the Bible's trying to describe here is when God's turning red in, in his face, he's trying to tell you the intensity of his love for you. See, we talk about God's love, but we talk about it in such a passive way that doesn't really seem like love. It seems more like friendship or kind of your grandparents that you visit every so often, right? That's not how God feels about you. He feels intensely loving and passionate towards you. And his behavior reflects that. Now, yours may not reflect that back to him, but that's how he thinks of you. Now, look at this. It seems to refer to the change of the color of the face or the rising heat of the emotions which are associated with the intense zeal or fervor over something dear to us. In fact, both the Old and New Testament words for jealousy are also translated zeal. Being jealous and being zealous are essentially the same thing in the Bible. God is zealous, eager about protecting what is precious to him. So when the Bible talks about jealousy and when God says, I am jealous, what he's saying about us is, I love you and I love you intensely and I will not share you with anyone else. Think about that for a moment. When the Israelites go into the promised land, the one thing God says to them, do not worship other gods. You're mine. Right? You're mine. If you're in a relationship and the person kind of doesn't have that initial emotion of, of, of wanting to be with you, you're in the wrong relationship. If that person doesn't love you to the point of like, I just want to hang out and spend time with you, you're in the wrong relationship. Because that intensity of emotion is supposed to be there in a marriage relationship. Right? And if it's not, and again, ebb and flow, but if it's not, that's actually a sign of dysfunction. As a matter of fact, as a pastor, I've, I've counseled couples, and one of the number one things is the two couples, the, the couples will have separate lives, and they begin to drift apart. And they don't really care if their spouse comes home or who they're hanging out with. They just don't care anymore. That's a warning sign. That's a relational drift. The jealousy that God talks about is he wants your relationship with him to stay pure. Now, I started off this series by telling you that I was going to tell you about these three points. These have been my three guiding principles throughout this series. And I want to go over them because I said to you the very first week, this is where I'm going to end off. And I want to talk about these right now as I wrap this up here because this is exactly what we've been talking about. I said to you, love is foundational, desire is instructional, and passion is directional. And because we talked about passion last week, let me show you what I'm talking about, right? Your passions, right? It's, it's this excitement, this emotion. It's not a thing that you follow. Instead, it's an energy and excitement you bring with you wherever you go in life. This passion is meant to be for God. If you are passionate for God, right, seek ye first, seek God's kingdoms first, then everything else will be added unto you. Unless a man or woman hates his mother, father, brother, sister, husband, and wife, they cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying? Your passion, your excitement for life must first focus on you. In Luke, Jesus is telling the story about the parable of the sower. You know the story, right? Guy goes out, sows seeds, right? But in the third seed, he talks about the thorns. And what does he say? What robs the gospel of its power in your life? Worries, riches, and pleasures. And they do not mature. What's he saying? Your passions for other things make you immature as a Christ follower. And I would say to you, that's all we're seeing in the church today is immature Christ followers. 
we are so passionate about this festival and doing these good things and this food and wine and beer and, and all these, like, people will talk about what they're passionate about and you know what they're passionate about within the first five minutes of the conversation. I just wish that we as Christ followers would be so passionate about God, about the things of the Lord, about what he has for us. Your passions can only be fulfilled fully and completely in God. Why? You're created in his image. You are incomplete without God and that intimate relationship that he wants. Desire is instructional. In 1 Peter chapter 4, right? Now, Peter and Paul were both martyred around the same time in the persecution of Nero in about 60 AD. This is the first wave, what the Romans did, is they took all the leaders of the church they could find, and they killed them. And Peter's letter is his last time he's going to have a conversation with those, his church, and, and this, is, this is out there, right? So Peter is trying to tell the church something, because the word is spreading that the Romans are now just trying to clamp down on Christians. So now look what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, because this is getting close to the end of his letter. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of the earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Your desires are instructional. Why? Because what you desire is what you become. And if it's not God... It's a problem. What does Peter say? Have the same attitudes as Jesus. Have the same attitudes as Jesus. Now, stop for that for a second. Think about that. What's Peter saying to the church? Jesus loved you so much that he willingly left the glory, right? What does Philippians chapter 2 say? Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he became humble as a servant, being obedient even unto death. Now, I don't know about you, I don't leave my comfortable life to become uncomfortable. But God does. Right? Our relationship with God, we get all the benefits, but he pays all the cost. We sin, we fall, we fail. He pays the cost, we get the benefits. It's an unequal relationship completely. But that's the loving relationship God has with us. Your desires are instructional because what you desire is what you become. Love is foundational. I said this very first week, and I thought it was pretty good, so I thought I'd repeat it right now. Love is the language of creation. Do you ever ask yourself, why did God create everything if he knew that sin was going to come in? Why would he create everything if he knew that sin would twist this world? Every time I see atrocities going on around the world, and I'm not just talking about the U.S. election, uh, whenever I see all that's going on in the world, every natural disaster, every disease, every violence enacted by war, all these things, I think to myself, God, why? Why? Love, free will. These two things are in, you cannot separate them. The reason why we have free will is because God wants us to willingly have a relationship with him. And you can only have an authentic relationship if you have the ability to refuse that relationship. I've used an analogy before, right? If I capture you, put you in a cage, and leave you in my living room, I invite people over and think, this is my best friend. They're like, are you sure about that as you're dialing 911, right? Are you sure that you're a best friend? Oh, well, of course you're my best friend. They, never, they don't leave. They're in a cage. Of course they can't leave, right? That's not an authentic relationship. That's a relationship confined by a barrier that I've created. God will not have that. He wants our heart and our love, but he wants it willingly. He won't put us in a cage, and he could with his power, but he won't. He wants that willingly. So love is the language of creation. Whatever you think about this world, 
God intended it for it to be a loving relationship with humanity. A healthy love has limits and limits you. I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, in regards to celebrity. I've been thinking about what makes celebrity so perverse. And what I mean by perverse is that these celebrities, these individuals who have so much power, so much wealth, so much fame, why do they act and behave that is so abnormal? Because nothing confines them. If you were a celebrity with a movie or a music or, or books or whatever it would be, who says no to you? No one. Who do you surround yourself with? Everybody that tells you that what you're doing is great. There is no limits to their life. There's no limits to their passions and desires because every around them just feeds into that. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't allow you to live whichever way you want and says, oh, that's okay. Well, I'm okay with that. Yeah, go ahead. God's relationship with you, his love for you, it has limits and limits you, just like a marriage relationship. If my wife loves me but goes out and has a relationship with other people, what kind of love is that? If I do the same thing, right? That is a dysfunctional relationship, and there is lack of, of, of trust and, um, and integrity in the relationship. God's love has boundaries, and those boundaries are what keeps us relationally pure and behaviorally consistent. Two concepts throughout the Old Testament, right? What does he want? He wants us not to serve other gods, relationally pure. But also, we behave and act like we believe that relationship to have significance. Our belief, um, our belief um, enacts our behavior. We behave a certain way because of what we believe. That's the relational purity. That's a, that, that consistency behavior that God wants for us. It also moves us to Christ-likeness. You can't be like Jesus if you live whichever way you want to. I, I'm going I'm to have a relationship with that person. I'm going to do this. I'm going to behave that way. That's not really what Christ wants from us. We started off by looking at 1 John. And in 1 John, we says God is love. But I want to put that verse, that phrase, in context. Now look what John says about God's love. Because he frames God's love in a certain way. You can't say God is love until you understand what kind of love. You can't understand what God's love looks like until you see what John frames it as. Because this is the part that we leave out. I've heard preachers out there who, who, who profess love for God, but then love for everything else. It's like, do you understand that framing of that love? Well, John does frame that love for us. We need to take that, that phrase, God is love, and put it back in the context of the scriptures that John used. Look what he says. Dear friends, let's love one another, for love comes from God. This stuff we know. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. Now watch. John's about to frame God's love. God's love is not permission for your behavior. God's love is not permission for you to look and act whichever you want. That's not God's love is. God's love is he sent his, own, his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God's impetus towards us, God's focus towards us is his love. But that love is not just do what you want. It's be transformed. I think Max Lucado says it best this way. God loves you the way you are, but refuses to leave you that way. You encounter God's love, but his love is meant to take you from that and now mature and grow you. Your encounter of God is meant to transform you and change you. I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to do something a little different. And here's what I want you to do. As I've taught this series, I am acutely aware that... um, As we talk about God's love, people have different ways of looking at it. 
But one of the things I find when I talk with people about God's love is their inability to accept it. As I'm telling you about a God who's passionate for you, who loves you, who cares for you, some of you say to yourselves, I'm not worried of that, worthy of that love. I fall and I fail, and how can God love me? I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, how can God love me? When I behave this way, when I fall, when I fail, and my response consistently to them is, you don't really understand God's love. You understand human love, and you're comparing God's love to human love, because in human love, when you fail, it affects the relationship. Your failing with God affects the relationship, but he always is there to pick you up and to bring you into a relationship with him. So what we did in the first service, I want to do this last in the second service, is I want you this morning to meditate. And I want you to meditate upon God's love. Melissa is going to lead us in a song. I'm not going to put the words on the screen. Instead, on the screen, you're going to see scriptures about God's love. I've really prayed about them and thought, you know, what do you want to say? And I've chosen from different perspectives. And as Melissa's playing, just read the words. You can sing along to the song. You know the words. He is jealous for me. You see what we did there? Read the scriptures. As you read through the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, you start to understand your consciousness begins expanded about how God loves you. And not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, not because of your family, not because of your past, but because of your future. Romans 5 says, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. While we are in the midst of our sin, our messes, our choices, our behavior, God loves us. Please understand, God's love for you is always an unequal relationship. You turn your back away from him, you, you follow other things, and God's always like, I love you, I love you, I love you. Yeah, yeah, God, I, I, when I get time, I get, no, I love you, I love you. You can take a thousand steps away from God, it's always one step back. You can go years without thinking for God, but at one moment, you can have that embrace of God's love in a minute. Why? Because God is always reaching out to humanity. He's always calling us back into relationship with him. A pure relationship. A relationship that talks about love and grace and mercy. So Melissa's going to sing the song. You can watch the screen. Look at the scripture. Meditate on it. Or you can sit there and you can pray. Whatever you want to do in these few minutes. And then we'll close after that.